this passage today is deeply personal to me. It has some strong significance on things that we have walked through uh, and continue to walk through. In fact, when we discussed Rory being gone, it was not insignificant that this particular text happened to be where we left off after three weeks of examining the history, source, uh, and nature of the scriptures. Last week, we were left with the question, so what? What implications does this have for the believer? Uh, And today, we're going to examine some of those questions. But before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for this week where many of us had an opportunity to to gather uh, and remember what we're thankful for. God, a season of of thanksgiving, and and in that spirit, Lord, just am thankful for your word. Lord, I'm thankful for your spirit who empowers us and, uh, Lord, and and teaches us. Lord, I, I desire to be faithful to the text today. I don't want this to be uh, a message that comes from just personal experience or ideas, but, Lord, that, that its source is your word. We thank you, Lord, and I, I just pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, uh, Lord, and that you would do in us what you desire to do in us through your word. May it pierce our hearts, Lord, if, if there's conviction to be there, then, Lord, bring conviction. If there's rejoicing, Lord, bring rejoicing. If there's vision, Lord, bring vision. But, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be moving in this place and and actively speaking to us. And we pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to jump right into it. I see that we're already at 40 minutes, and I've had a propensity in the past to kind of extend that a little bit longer. So I think of that as a little bit more of a guideline. Uh, But but we're going to get into this today, and, and there's a lot of scripture to cover uh, and there's a lot of things for us to, to touch on, and so I, I don't want to spend too much time uh, with preliminaries. So with that, let's jump into 2 Timothy 4. Uh, we're going to read it together, and uh, so Kristen, if you want to put that up. Uh, we're going to read the entire passage, but then we're going to come back, and we're going to take a look at some things that I really want to examine today in particular. So we're going to start with 2 Timothy 4, uh, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus, 
I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained in Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Now, if you've been here for a couple weeks, you understand that there's some context here that we need to look at. Paul starts off this text with a strong exhortation to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and they'll wander off into myths. Now, if we, if we take a couple steps back for, for a minute, we can see that, that in 2 Timothy 3, and I just want to read this because Paul is, isn't, this just isn't an isolated part of his letter. In 2 Timothy 3, he says, but understand this. And I want you guys to pay attention to his words here. He says that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. He goes on to expound a little bit about his experience, and and we know that he's writing to Timothy. This is a deeply personal letter. We know that Paul has invested a large amount of time in Timothy. Timothy is himself becoming a minister of the gospel. And Paul appeals to him. He says, listen, you know me. You've seen what I have walked through. And he gives this appeal, and at the end of it he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have, finally, and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it. So this is the context that we start from when we start to evaluate this last chapter of, Paul, of Paul's letter to Timothy. I don't know how many of you know this, if you were 
uh, here with us as we started this series in 2 Timothy. Um, This is Paul's last letter. Paul is writing this letter, and we can sense, if we go back and we read, we, we can hear in Paul's words that he understands that his time is coming due. And we know that Paul was, was martyred. We know that Paul, Paul gave his life for the gospel. He goes on to tell Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Paul understands that his time is short. Why is that significant? I think when we look at the last words that somebody writes, they know that this might be the last words that Timothy will ever hear. They're certainly the last words that we have penned to read. Paul is giving us something. Now notice, Paul uses some language here. The last days, there will come times of difficulty. So Paul's speaking to that. In our text, he's saying, the time is is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. So Paul is, is looking forward. Paul is seeing something that is to come. Now, it's, it's undoubtedly true. We know if we've read Acts, if we've, if we've read the other epistles, Paul was constantly dealing with, with people who were teaching wrong things. Paul was constantly warning about those who were misleading people. But as his last words to Timothy, he chose to give him a warning a warning about what was to come. And so as we look at this, it's important that we understand and look through a lens of of Paul speaking forward. He's speaking to us. I don't know about about you, but if I were to to go back and read, but understand in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless. Unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Man, that sounds like my Facebook feed. This week I read an article, maybe some of you caught it. It was about a young man who went to the North Sentinelese people. Felt like God was calling him to go to a people who have been openly hostile to anyone who comes to visit, visit their island. In 2006, a couple of fishermen drifted too close to the island, and, uh, and, and they attacked them. Uh, after the tsunami, a, a helicopter uh, came and flew over, and they shot arrows at the helicopter. They, they're clearly not wanting to be disturbed. But here was a young man who read the Scripture who read Jesus' call in Matthew 24 that says this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so in that, he felt for several years, as I was reading the articles, the first ones that came out made him sound like he was just kind of a a tourist that ended up in the wrong place or was misguided or, or, you know, didn't didn't have a lot of thought and planning. And, And the more you read and the more you dig into it, you actually find out that this is a young man who's been researching this group of people 
for many years. The Lord put it on his heart for him to go. And as I read the comments on those articles, and if you want to be discouraged about the current place our culture is, just read the comments uh, at the end of an article on CNN or Yahoo or any of the other major uh, news articles. But, but what discouraged me wasn't that there were people who, who didn't understand why he went or who thought it was foolish. We understand that. The Bible tells us that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. So we expect that the world will think that it's foolish. But I think what discouraged me was that 99, maybe out of a 100 of those comments were, were ridiculing this young man. And as I read the comments, many of them were coming from believers. I said, I believe in Jesus, but we really should just leave these people alone. They have their own religions. They have their own things. Who are we to think that, that we can go and, 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 and bring something? How arrogant of us. <clears throat> and that would be true if this isn't true. But if this is true, then it would be most unloving of us to withhold it from anyone. And so as I read the story of John Chow, my heart was provoked. And as I read the comments coming from believers, my heart was also provoked. It was saddened because I realized it's not anything new. We know. We know that we're living in difficult times. We know that we're living in, in times where things are changing. We know that we're living in a time where there are many people who will not endure sound teaching. Who will go from place to place looking for something that will sound good. That will make me feel good. That will allow me to live how I want to live. And really that's kind of the heart of what we're getting at here in verse 3. Before we get there, I, I want to make a couple of other observations. I think they're important because they set the framework for how we respond. How do we respond to this personally, corporately? How do we respond? Well, the broader narrative Paul is laying out for us in chapters 3 and 4, it points to the Bible as the authority, a standard by which to navigate the troubling times to come. And I would say the troubling times that we find ourselves in. As we mentioned before, Paul understands that his time is growing close. And this is what he chooses to share. Knowing very well, this may be the last letter that Timothy ever receives from him. He pens these words. That's significant. And as we look and we see and we understand that the Bible was inspired, it was an inspired work by the Holy Spirit. It's no accident Paul's words. It's no accident what's been written for us today to take, to learn, to, to understand. Paul is also addressing problems that he foresees coming. It is indeed a warning that carries significance for us because we weren't there when Paul penned this letter. He was speaking for those who would come after him. 
he was looking forward and he was seeing something. And as I studied, my mind was, was brought back to a sermon I had listened to uh, a few months ago, actually probably even a few years ago, by a man named David Wilkerson. And what stood out to me was he was teaching out of Isaiah 30. And we know that Paul was a very studied man. We know that he understood the Jewish scriptures. He goes into great uh, detail, especially in his conversations with Jews, to lay out his credentials. Look, I was a, I was a student under Gamaliel. One of the greatest teachers of the law in Israel. I, I was that guy. I, he knew his Old Testament. He knew the prophets. And as I, as I think about that, I think that's also significant. Why? Because Paul was drawing something forward, and, and it sounds remarkably similar to what we find in Isaiah. And certainly, Paul would have been a student of Isaiah, without a doubt. Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets, some of the the greatest prophecies we have about the Messiah to come, come from Isaiah. And in Isaiah 30, and I'm going to skip the first part, we might come back to it if we have time. But God tells Isaiah, go and write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right, but speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One, of Israel. Smooth things. Speak to us smooth things. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. And we go back and we can see Paul is, is writing, and it sounds remarkably similar. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Teach us smooth things. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, they will seek after and they will raise up teachers who tell them what they want to hear. And the result of that is that they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So it's my deep conviction that Paul is writing prophetically as he writes this. And I believe he's drawing on Isaiah. He is seeing something to come. And friends, I believe when you read that, that it speaks very well to the times that we find ourselves in. Now, there's another truth that we can draw from this. And as we mentioned up before, Paul spent a lot of time in his ministry as this young new thing called Christianity was spreading across the empire of Rome. Along with that, as always happens, springs up false teachers. And so Paul spends a lot of time defending and teaching. Look, it's about Jesus. It's about the gospel. And a lot of these false teachers we know came from Judaizers who were saying that, oh, wait, you've got to do this to be saved. You've got to do this to be saved. You must be circumcised to be saved. We can look at Galatians and Paul speaking often about the gospel, that we're justified by faith in Jesus, not by works of the law. There's a lot of false teaching that rises up. 
There's a lot of heresies that begin to rise up. Even now, even in this first century church, Paul is doing battle. But there's a truth here that if there are people who are going to wander and they're going to heap up for themselves teachers that suit their passions, then by the very inference that that is true, then there will be many teachers in that time who are complicit. This will be a widespread problem. Not only will people wander away from truth and wander into myths, but so will the teachers who they heap up for themselves. That's a logical conclusion. If false teaching is going to be pervasive, if the people are going to seek after false teaching, then there will be false teachers. My heart breaks a lot as I see friends who I've known for many years. We went to school together. We spent time with one another. We spent time in chapel with one another. I went to a Bible college. It wasn't all about everybody who was there to to be pastors or ministers, but it was a Bible college, and we we met regularly, and we, we prayed with one another. We worshiped together in a chapel daily. I'm going to come back to that. So what does this look like? What kinds of things do we need to be wary of? Do we need to be, do we need to be cautious of as we, uh, as we look forward? What causes somebody to go and to seek out a teacher who will tell them what they want to hear? I, I obviously can't hit on every one of them today, but I'm going to hit on a few. I think the first one that stands out maybe is the most obvious is that there's a desire to indulge sin. We live at a time where holiness is not something that's sought after. Righteousness is not something that our culture seeks. They seek the opposite of that. And what happens to a church that becomes carnal, to a a group of believers who become carnal, is that we then want to indulge our sin too. So often those who would go and seek a teacher are seeking one that will tell them, that's okay. That's okay. That's all right. It will accommodate me in my sin. I think that that's probably one of the more obvious ones. I think we can all look at that and we can understand that. That makes sense. There's something in my life, and I don't want to give it up. Why, what does Paul say? He, he sees, they seek this not, not because they're, they're, they're led into, into truth. They're, they're wanting to, to fulfill their passion. That's what it says. They want to fulfill their passion. Well, what is my passion? That's the thing. And if you tell me that that's okay, I'm following you. Now, here's a problem with that. The Bible is clear. And so in order for us to do that, in order for us to indulge sin, then these teachers have to attack the very thing that we're defending these last few weeks. We spent this time saying, this is God-breathed. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is infallible. Well, in order for me to indulge those things that the Bible is clear about, then I then have to attack the very thing that, that is the foundation for what I believe. Obviously, you can see where that leads us. If we have to change the meaning of Scripture to indulge what we want to do, 
then where is Scripture's authority? And believe me, we have to do a lot of tangling of Scripture to get there. But here's the thing. That's widespread now. There are a lot of people who attack the authority of the word. Was that really what the the authors meant? Is that really what that translation means? Those kinds of questions are dangerous because they're generally born out of of a desire to fulfill that which is unrighteous and unholy. Those aren't honest questions. Those aren't answers that are seeking the truth. Paul says that's for people who are turning away from the truth. Maybe one that that hits a little bit closer to home for me is that one reason we might speak or seek out other other teachers, other things that, that satisfy us is because we want to indulge our unbelief. That's a challenging one. What do I mean by that? Well, I already gave you an example. John Chow, this this man who is willing to risk his life for the gospel to go to a people who have never heard it. You know, the account talked about one of the days, the day before he died, he actually attempted to go on shore. And one of the men shot shot an arrow, and a young teenage man, he said, shot an arrow, and and it pierced his Bible. And he turned around and he went back and he was discouraged. And the next day he went, hoping to make contact with them, to give them gifts. And that day it cost him his life. That's inconvenient for me. Man, it would be so easy to go and to listen to pleasant words that don't challenge my way of thinking, that don't challenge my comfort. A lot of what we do, a lot of what this culture, as blessed as we are, gives us is is comfort. It's a challenge to that. Perhaps one of the other reasons why people seek out after teachers that that tickle the ears is we have an insatiable need for entertainment. It's another curse of our culture. Man, I want the best worship experience. That's not about who we're worshiping. It's about what I feel. It's about what entertains me. It's about what I enjoy. Do they have the best children's ministry? They have the most fun youth group in all the town, in all the city. So many people are seeking something that, friends, we can't hold on to. Those things do not matter. Yes, is it important that we we teach our children? Absolutely. Do we place a high emphasis and priority on teaching our children here? Yes, we do. But it's hard for me to watch a church that gathers in China under threat of punishment, of persecution, and yet they make the choice to meet when it may cost them everything. And sometimes 
in my life, I've had to make the choice, do I just want to go or watch the football game? Now, understand that, that those aren't bad things. Football is not a bad thing. Being entertained in and of itself is not a bad thing, but, but we live for it. And if my heart lives for it, then I'm going to seek that everywhere I go. That church in China is an unstoppable church. But I fear that many of our churches here are completely stoppable. That megachurch pastor leaves. That other one has an affair. The worship is better over here than over here. This guy's a better speaker than that guy. And pretty soon our decisions and, and what takes us from place to place have nothing to do with the one that we're supposed to be seeking after. You know, as I was studying, and we see that these are Paul's last words, there was something that, that really spoke to me. And as I read through the other New Testament teachers, I'm going to name a few of them for you. Jude, John, Peter, Matthew, Mark, Luke, of course, we know the gospel writers. Every New Testament author speaks about and warns us about the days to come. Every one of them. If I were to read from Jude, which I'm going to do, and that's why I said we had some scripture to go through, I just want to call your attention to this. Beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing for you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude writes one letter that we have recorded here. This is what he chooses to write. I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. I wanted to write to you about all this stuff, but there's something coming. I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago are designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, these are teachers who tickle your ears because you want to indulge your flesh. He goes on to say, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Paul writes the exact same thing. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jude's only letter, this is what he writes to us about. Many of you know John. My, I have a, a, a deep passion for First John because it's been so influential in my life. If you ever have that question, which for me at one point in my life I had often, and am I saved? Well, John writes this, hey, you can be confident. This isn't something that you have to come and, and fear about. I'm writing this so that you can have confidence. That's a great place to start. If you're doubting that today, read 1 John. It will change your life. But John writes us in 1 John 2, Children, 
it is the last hour. And as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming, so how now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. He goes on to talk about the fact that we've been anointed by the Holy One to have knowledge. He goes on to say, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Because no lie is of the truth. John is, is reaffirming this. He says, who is the liar that denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you too will abide in the Son and the Father in his promise that made to us and that was made to us eternal life. I'm not going to read the rest of it because of time. But I want you to note what John is, is doing here. He's saying, go back to what you know to be true, where you started from. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's not Jesus plus. It's not Jesus in this new philosophy, this new way of thinking. It's been laid out for us from the beginning. We have everything we need in the scriptures for the knowledge of what is true. Now, this could come a little bit as a surprise to some of us. The Antichrist is he who denies the Father and the Son. Now, how does that fit into what we're, what we're talking about? It, I mean, if somebody acknowledges that Jesus is the, is the Christ, or Jesus is the Son of God, then things must be okay. But here's the problem in that. I have many friends who follow teachers who would say, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. But there's a subtle change. Jesus is a way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. There are many out there who, under the label and banner of Christianity, promote a Christianity that's not Christianity at all. It promotes a Jesus who isn't Jesus. Because if he's not the Christ, then he's not the Christ. He's the wrong Jesus. And many are drawn into that because the teaching sounds good. And I want to say something to that. This is deceptive primarily because it comes across with a message of love. A message of acceptance. A message that says the same thing that the world says. It's arrogant to think that, that you have the answers. But we, it's not us. It's him. He says it. I am the way. It's reaffirmed by Peter who says there is salvation in no one else. No one means no one. Not Muhammad, not Buddha. Nothing else. Why am I saying this? Because these are the times that we do find ourselves in. Friends, these writers, Peter, I'm not even going to go into it because we don't have, have time. Jude, Paul, they're all writing to us. They're saying this is to come. This is to come. Be ready. Be prepared. This is what you're going to face. Isaiah prophesied it. We already read it in, in chapter 30. Isaiah prophesied this is what it will be like at the times of the end. People will forsake their first love and they will seek after the things of this world. Friends, that is the danger. That is the danger facing you and I. 
It's a danger facing our kids, our communities. You know, Jesus himself himself shares some things with us that are important. Why are they important? I think they speak to us very clearly in 21st century America. He goes on to say in in Matthew 6, as he's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye, of the, lamp, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and insert the blank. James, in his final letter, just to touch on one more. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Man, it sounds a lot like he's taking straight from the words of Jesus, does it not? Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and you will eat uh, your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Sometimes the very things and the very blessings we receive become the very source that leads us to take our eyes off Christ. When we read from Isaiah 30, if you go on to read that within the context of what the Lord is speaking through Isaiah, he's saying, my people have taken their eyes off of me. They're looking to Egypt. They're looking to the things of this world. They're going back to the very things that enslaved them. Friends, in 21st century America, I believe that is the same issue that we face, the same dangers that we face. The very things that we often perceive as blessings are the very thing that keep us from Christ. My father-in-law just got back from China, had a great time at Thanksgiving speaking with him. It was an amazing experience. And as we were talking, he was sharing with me what the Chinese believers go through. And if you're in China... If you were in the city, it, would, it, would, it wouldn't look that much different in some ways besides being extremely dirty and smoggy uh, to life in any city. But he says as you talk with the people, as you, as you, as you get away from that context and you, and you get into their lives and especially into the lives of believers, but, but even those who are not believers, you see a very oppressed people. They're under watch of the government. They're under constant threat. In fact, while he was there with the group of pastors that he was on a tour with, uh, a woman was giving her testimony uh, and they, they filmed it, and uh, within a few days, um, she was contacted by the, the government, asked to come in. Now, none of them shared it on Facebook. None of them uh, uh, took liberty to share what they had heard. 
um, which raises a lot of questions on surveillance in China. But I think you pretty much have to assume that, that you're under constant surveillance in China, and these believers understand that, and their house churches are constantly shifting. And yet that church is growing. It's exploding. People are so hungry for the gospel. And see, that's something that happens when you take away all of this. We have so much that we don't need God. And that's exactly what he was saying to Isaiah. My people have become to where they no longer need me. They have everything they need. I've given them all these things. I've given them all these blessings. They no longer need me. And that is his indictment against his people. And friends, we have to be so careful. So what are the implications of this? I'm going to share with you some things, and these might be primarily for me. You know, one of the advantages about, about teaching is that, is that we're confronted with having to, to, to read the Scripture and study, it, and, and, and the Holy Spirit speaks to us. But I believe this isn't just for me, and so I'm going to share it. If it's, if it's for you, then praise God. I hope that it brings conviction, because here's the thing, friends. I look around, and, and I'm not speaking about just this church. Please, I, I want to be very careful to say that I... I uh, I'm not just uh, generalizing uh, our church with everybody else. But I look around at the Western church. I look around at the American church. I look around at my friends who have fallen so far away from Christ. And I can't help but, but be concerned that as we read the scripture, if that's not bringing conviction to us, that, that there's a problem. Because there's a lot that's wrong in this season. Not only that, but there's a lot of things that we've been given to do. There's a lot of things that we've been charged with, and, and, and I'll touch on that in a minute. But, but here are some implications. I understand it's inconvenient to me to think about John Chow. It's inconvenient for me to think about the movie that I watched a, a couple weeks ago about these believers in China. I'm going to use them as an example because I, I can't understand Understand, uh, as I'm speaking to you guys, I'm processing today. I don't understand, and so as I speak these things to you, part of it is my own conviction. But it's inconvenient me, for me to see these believers who go to seminaries for two years. They're secret seminaries. Nobody has been allowed to go there. There's one Westerner that has been allowed to go in and to film them. No other foreigners have even been allowed into this area. It's a very secret thing because if the government finds that the government cracks down on, on, on house church movements, it cracks down on believers, it would absolutely, this would be a target. But these believers in China who are selected and chosen and they consider it a great honor, they go and for two years they never leave this building because it's so important that they don't be found out. For two years they go and they, and they stay in this building. They're away from their family. They're away from, from everything that they know. And they spend two years and they call it seminary and they're studying the scripture. They're studying and being built up in the spirit. And after two years, most of them buy a one-way ticket and they go to the Middle East with the understanding that they will probably never return and a very high likelihood that they'll be killed by Islamic radicals as they attempt to share the gospel. How does that fit in? <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> That's inconvenient to me. 
As I sit and my kids go to school and we gather here and we can worship in complete freedom, that's inconvenient to me. And my fear is that we're easily willing to give up in freedom. But they're not willing to give up in persecution. That's inconvenient to to talk about. And I'm sorry that may be for me, not for you. Ah, Excuse me, trying to compose myself here. It's inconvenient to consider that so many of our brothers and sisters around the world choose between church and consequence. And my biggest battle sometimes is my desire to be entertained. That's inconvenient to me. You know, we think our Christianity costs us nothing. But in reality, it costs us everything. I had an online conversation this week with with somebody in we were discussing Paul's words, which we read in 2 Timothy. Many of you maybe remember it. And he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we were talking about persecution in our culture. And they said, oh, we're not persecuted. And to some extent, I understand what they're saying. I mean, we, it's really difficult to compare what we might consider persecution what our brothers and sisters around the world face. I wouldn't dare compare my persecution to theirs. But the inconvenient truth is that if we preach the gospel in this culture, we will be persecuted. That's an inconvenient truth. If you and I are willing to step forward and preach the gospel, why will we be persecuted? Because there's a world who is, who is anti-Christ. And so if you preach Christ, you will be mistreated. That's inconvenient. It's more convenient for me, like this woman that I was having this conversation with online, to say, we're not persecuted here. Why? Because that makes me feel good. And you know what? I could easily go and find a teacher that will tell me, you're right, you're good, we're not persecuted here, and I can continue to feel accommodated and my unbelief or my disobedience. That's inconvenient to me. Our Christianity costs us everything. When Jesus comes and, he, and, he, and we surrender our life to him, he's not looking for a slice of the pie. He is the pie. He's everything. We don't get to take and, and say, this is your piece, Jesus, but the rest of this is mine. That's not how it works. But friends, I spent a lot of my life growing up and in the church, and that's how it worked for me. And you know what? I was was saved. I know that. I know that I loved Jesus. I know that that many of you who, who probably are a lot like me, this is probably a little inconvenient for us to, you know, to talk about and to press on some of these issues. But here's the danger, friends, and I want you to hear. We're living in a world where the vast majority of people in a culture where the vast majority of people want a Jesus that's created in their own image. 
That is at the heart of the itching ears. That is at the heart of finding teachers that suit my passions. They suit how I want to live. And it's a Christianity, which really is no Christianity at all, but it conforms to their fleshly desire and how they want to live. It's not Christianity, but a religion of comfort and conformity. The hour is late. We need to live with urgency. Nothing restrains God at this point in history but his mercy. And and I think the sad thing that, that as I've watched our culture unfold and Christianity unfold in our culture is that this has really created a a Christianity where where we don't need anti-conversion or proselytization laws in our nation because Christians have surrendered sharing their faith by choice. The simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of the truth. That's what Paul appeals to. Remember what you learned. Remember your first love. Remember when you first heard the gospel, the joy that it brought to you, the freedom that it brought to you. Maybe you haven't experienced that. Then, friend, I plead with you. Today is the day. So, in in wrapping this up, What are some implications of this? The one is we must abide in Christ. We must abide in Christ. We must hold fast and firm to the truth. Our eyes must be laser focused on him. Second, we must have a renewed mind. This today is not meant to be a a message that's that's simply heavy. It's It's a warning. Paul is giving us a warning, so we must listen. We must not allow our culture to shape our thinking. We must allow the word of God to shape our thinking. We must have a renewed mind. So much of what God has has done in my life, and I'm grateful to him for it, it started out with him changing the way that I think. Long before it hit here, it started here. If this is true, then... If this is true, then. If the word of God is true, if this is life, man, I must read it. If prayer is powerful, if it is powerful and it's working and God has given me the opportunity to participate with him and what he's doing on on the earth, then I must pray. These aren't checklists of items that we do to, 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 to fill in our Christian checklist and card. These are things we do because we have faith and we believe that they are true. Third, we must put away unrighteousness. I fear that there are many, as I mentioned before, that seek out teachers who will continue to accommodate them in their sin. I pray you don't find that here. I pray that when you come here, the Holy Spirit moves in conviction and he, and he causes us and our sins to be brought before our face and, and in that moment we repent and say, you are right, I am wrong, God. We must put away unrighteousness. It has no place 
for the believer as we move out and as God calls us into the mission that he's given us to do in this world, we cannot move forward in practicing our sin. Does this mean we'll never sin? No, of course not. But many of us are enslaved to sin. I was enslaved to sin. And I'm grateful to God that he never allowed me to move forward in the, even in the things that I felt from an early age he was calling me to do, that he didn't allow me to do that in my unrighteousness because it would have brought ruin to me and it would have brought ruin to his name. Fourth, we must have eyes and hearts for eternity. We must be looking forward and understanding and looking at the apostles and living like they did. You know, here's the interesting thing, the reason why I brought up to you Peter and John and James. These men all looked forward, and many of them believed, look, Christ is, it, this is, this is going a direction. Christ is going to return. I believe many of them thought he was going to return in their very lifetime. It's interesting to me that we can go for years and, and go into many churches where this idea of Christ's return is never even named. This is what these men looked to. And we talk about keeping our eyes in Christ and we talk about, about being laser focused. Friends, this will keep you focused. If you have eyes for eternity, if your decisions are driven by this idea and this identity, Fifth, we must realize that this is a war. I'm not talking about a, a, a war like we, we think of, but this is a spiritual war. This is very simple. There are two sides to this war. There is, there is one enemy that desires that the gospel would be silenced and that, that many would not hear it. And then there is the, the commission of Jesus who said, this is the reason I came and as the Father sent me, I even so am sending you. Friends, this is who we are. And we are mistaken if we think this is not a war. This is very real. And the casualties are eternal consequences. And that's not just for those that are out there. That's for us too. Paul is writing a warning to Timothy saying, preach the word, stay true, because a time is coming when everyone around you is going to be seeking out after people who will tell them what they want to hear to suit their passions. Friends, that's a spiritual battle. And last but not least, and I kind of already hit on it, is we've been given a mission. God has given us a mission. And friends, that, that's, that's for us to, to keep going forward in obedience. God has given us so much, and he's given us a job to do. I don't know that it's ever been more clear in the history of the world, the mission of the church. Around my Thanksgiving table, um, we don't talk too much about politics, <laughs> thank goodness. But theology comes up a lot. And I had a good conversation with my brother-in-law, and he said, you know, uh, you know, there's all this talk about going overseas, and these people have never heard the gospel, but, but there are people uh, everywhere who haven't heard the gospel. Why, why are we going overseas? Or why is that the focus? Why is that such an emphasis? The reality, friends, is this isn't an either-or situation. I agree with him. If you go out and you have a conversation with somebody in our culture, even if they've grown up in the church, this is the time we are living in. There's a chance they've never really heard the gospel message. This is our mission. We are here. 
God has given us this mission. But here's what might be a little inconvenient too. He's also given us a mission to go. Our church has embraced that mission. We go to Nepal. We go and and we're developing a strategy where our goal is not just to go for the sake of going. It's it's to have a vision to reach an unreached people, to adopt them, to, to pray for them, to go to them, to speak the gospel to them. God has given us that mission, and we're going to be faithful to it. In closing, I just want to share a story with you that, that I was going to share at the beginning, and I just felt like the Holy Spirit was, <clears throat> was, was putting that on pause for a moment. Why is this so passionate to me? Why, you know, I, I, I want this to be, I don't, I don't want us to leave here discouraged. If anything, I, I want us to, to leave encouraged, like our eyes have been opened. But here's the thing, there's many people who are living in darkness. And maybe some of you, you don't, you don't know why you're here today. You're at church, you don't know why you're at church. It's what you do, it's what we do. Well, well, praise God, this is an opportunity for God to speak to your heart. Maybe some of you aren't saved. I don't, I don't know everybody here. I don't know the spiritual condition of everyone in this room. But man, I, I hope you've, you've heard today that, that there is... There's a war happening for your very soul. And yet you are here. I don't believe that's, that's an accident. You may not know why you're here, but God brought you here. But my heart was provoked this week because this is my family. You guys are my family. I love you in the same way that I love my family who was here from out of town visiting. This is where God has called us. This is what he's called us to do as pastors, as elders. This is is not a place where we sit in in judgment. I hope you heard that today. This is the Lord dealing with me, and, and I'm asking you, please listen, because I believe this comes from the heart of God. He's given us a, a, a mission, whether we go to Nepal, whether we go outside our front doors as we walk out the doors today. He's given us a mission. And here's the thing. Many of us have friends, and it's, your, your experience is not that much different than mine. We have friends who have been, who have been pulled into all kinds of things, all kinds of teaching that, that brings them uh, into a place where they, can, where they can feel good, where they can feel uh, that their ears have been tickled because they've heard what they want to hear. But more and more and more, there's deception that is also there that is tearing people away from, from the very thing that saves them. It's tearing them away from Christ. And it's being done in the name of Christ, which is, which is just heartbreaking to me. I'm going to share with you guys an experience. Some of you have heard it. Probably most of you have not. I know that I haven't shared this very much with a lot of you who are, who are new um, to the fellowship here. Uh, so why is this so passionate to me? And I... I've shared this with Rory. I think that's probably why he wanted me to speak on this particular thing. But my sophomore year of college, I just started dating Stephanie. I remember the day well because it was October 31st. Hard to kind of forget, uh, you know, dates like that that are somewhat memorable. Uh, It was made more memorable by the fact that on the 30th, uh, the day before, uh, we had just started dating in what we called the Define the Relationship Talk. Um, DTR. Uh, and if you're familiar with the small bubble that maybe is called um, Bible 
school, um, <clears throat> we, uh, there was kind of a, a, a close-knit nature to a campus uh, like that, and, and having the DTR talk was just kind of one of those things that, that, that uh, happened in the progress of dating. Uh, but we had our DTR talk around the loop and, uh, on the day before, and so I was uh, pretty excited about that. And, um, you know, here's the thing. When I went to college, <clears throat> I was pretty naive. I was a young believer. I was an optimist, still am. Listen, this may sound heavy. I'm an optimist. Like, God is doing something. He's awakening us. And as we move forward, and as we are, 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 are excited about the things God is doing, friends, he has been at the, at the helm of this thing for some time now. He's the one that took us to Nepal. He's the one that has opened up our eyes to see these things. And I believe that he has something more. Like, I believe this is just the beginning. This is not a time to be discouraged. I'm, I'm sharing these things with you because it is a warning. I do love you guys, but, but this is as much about the times in the world and the things that are out there than it is just specific to this body of believers. But it would be foolish for us not to heed those warnings, would it not? But why am I passionate about this? Well, I was naive, and I went to, to Bible college, and, and, uh, and even though I wasn't studying to be in the ministry, I was studying to be, uh, I wanted to make money, so you can see where my heart was in that. Uh, I was studying to, uh, to be in business. I didn't want to be in ministry. I had those expectations on my life. Many of you probably don't know a lot of the history there. I've come from a, a three generations. I would be the fourth uh, if we ever end up in Brazil, uh, of missionaries to Brazil. But my, my grandfather was a famous evangelist in Brazil. And, uh, and the thing about where I went to college was that was right in the district that sends them to Brazil. And the school that I went to, an Assemblies of God school, um, everybody knew him. And many idolized him. Uh, and I had zero desire to be um, influenced into going in a, in a direction that, one, I didn't want to go, <laughs> but two, that other people wanted me to go. So I was there to study business. But I was not there to, um, I, I believed we were all there for the same intention. That was to, to, to serve God, to honor God in whatever professions that we chose. And so I was pretty naive looking back. Um, there were a lot of things that went on at a small Christian school that I had no idea that went on because I wasn't participating in them and coming from Little Prineville uh, and going to Santa Cruz, which I don't know how many of you are familiar with Santa Cruz, but, but even just going down into the heart of, of California in the Bay Area, um, there was a lot of things that, that just weren't on my, on my radar um, that I didn't think or understand the extent of maybe some of what was going on and a lot of those who were there worshiping alongside me and we were all there with our hands raised, praising Jesus, but, but there was a lot of things that were, that were going on under the surface of that in people's lives. I, I know that now. I didn't know that then. But even in that, um, I had a hard time getting up in the morning because I like to stay up late. Uh, and, uh, and so we had chapel every day, but you didn't have to go to chapel every day. Uh, you had to get a certain number of chapel credits. Why is that important? Uh, I guess I'm trying to illustrate to you that I wasn't there for any righteous purpose on what we called uh, spiritual emphasis weeks. Uh, despite the name, spiritual emphasis weeks, uh, I was there to get extra credit uh, for chapels that I had missed during the regular morning sessions. Uh, and so we had a speaker who was there. I couldn't tell you what they spoke about. I couldn't tell you much uh, about that night, uh, about that service, I should say. I could tell you a lot about the night. <clears throat> but I was naive 
in thinking that everybody was there at least on one level at the same reasons that I was. And that night, as the service wound down, we were getting ready to have our annual harvest party. Uh, and, uh, and so I was actually just kind of counting down the time until we could finally get out of there. And in that time, as we sang the last couple of closing worship songs, not too much unlike what we're going to do today. Uh, and I'm going to wrap this up here because I, I don't want to keep this going. But <clears throat> the Lord spoke uh, to me in a way that I've never experienced before or since. When we read in the scripture and the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon uh, somebody, I, I don't think that I um, had ever experienced something like that before. The only way to describe it to you is that as I stood there and kind of half singing the song, um, in a moment I suddenly felt like the, the most incredible pressure or weight on my shoulders, so much so that, that I couldn't move. And somehow I knew in that moment that it was God. <clears throat> it was the Holy Spirit. And as I came to that realization, something spoke very, very clearly to my heart and said, look around. The one thing I could do was move my head, so I looked from side to side. And as I did that, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, they're not going to be there. In my heart, I knew what that meant. But I asked the question anyway in my mind. I said, what do you mean they're not going to be there? And as soon as I could answer that question, as soon as I could even form the thought in my mind, he said, look to your right and to your left. Some of them who are standing there worshiping you, with you, I'm sorry, not worshiping with you, they're not going to be there. And this hit me so hard because as I mentioned to you, the thought would have never dawned on me that these people who I loved, who were my friends, that that would even be a reality. And something happened in that moment. I became overwhelmed with so much of a burden that I couldn't really describe because it wasn't my burden. I was overcome with, with, with God's heart and God's burden. And I couldn't wait to get out of there as soon as they dismissed us. I burst out of that chapel. I didn't even want to talk to anybody. I was still dealing with this burden, and I got in my car, and I drove down off the campus, and I didn't make it very far because I couldn't, I couldn't drive. I was so overwhelmed by this, and I didn't even know what it was. And so as I sat there weeping in my car, I called out. And I said, God, who are you talking about? Who? Are you, do you want me to speak to somebody? I'll do it right now. I'll, just tell me who it is. I'll go. And I'll talk to them. And I don't know how long I was there. It could have been five minutes. could have been 30 minutes. I, I really don't know. I think in those moments, it's, it's kind of like time stands still. And, and in that moment, as I was calling out to the Lord, I, there was a, suddenly a, <laughs> a disturbance, if you will. And uh, red and blue lights started flashing behind me. <clears throat> and... Uh, I knew what it was, and so I, uh, I quickly tried to compose myself, and, and uh, that wasn't possible in the moment, but I did my best. And, uh, and the police officer walked over and had his flashlight out and kind of tapped on the window, and uh, he said, are you all right? 
and not wishing to try to even come close to explaining what had just happened, uh, I said, yeah, officer, I, I'm fine. Just having a, you know, a little bit of a, of a rough day, and, you know, but everything's good. I'm fine. You don't have to worry. And uh, he wasn't buying that very well. Uh, but he said, you know what, here's what I'm going to do. He's like, I'm going to drive up the road, and I'll be back in about 10 minutes, and I'll, I'm just going to check on you. I said, okay, thanks, you know, thanks, officer, no problem. No need to do that, but it's, it's all good. And uh, over the window, and he drove off, and uh, those of you who heard this story before probably know, uh, I was, there was not a chance in the world I was going to be there when he came back. And so, uh, so I turned that car around, flipped it around, and I, and I took off and headed back up to the, to the campus. And as I drove back, though, the same... Um, thing that had hit me so hard was suddenly gone. And I remember having a conversation with God as I drove by the Denny's where I stopped and ate probably every other day as a college student and, and, and uh, drove up the, the, the about a mile, I was probably about a mile away from the campus. And as I drove back up the hill towards the campus, I remember saying, God, what was that? What were you trying to show me? Who? And I was still trying to, you know, to understand what had just happened in that moment. And it was met with silence. And as I got closer and I got to the parking lot, I just sat there and I said, Lord, what was that? Do you want something from me? What is this that you're, that you're asking of me? And again, it was met with silence. And within about a week, I'd pretty much forgotten about that experience. Not that it wasn't there but it just it didn't it didn't mean anything at that moment and I went on and kind of went about my my life and graduated from Bethany got my business degree uh, pursued business for a while found success in some areas and some areas not and uh, God was doing a lot of work on me in the meantime but we but a few years later and and not too long ago uh, the Lord began to do a work in me as we were fasting and praying as a church and he began to open my eyes, and, and I remembered that experience very vividly. And uh, so I began to ask him again, Lord, what do, you, what do you want? What was that for? At first, I thought it was about those people. So I remember writing, actually, a, a letter and, and sending it to all my Facebook friends who were acquaintances from college. And I got responses from several saying, thank you, thank you. That, this, that was for me. I, you know, the, the Lord speaking to me. But over time, I began to realize that wasn't so much for them. Yes, it was. I mean, here's, here's the reality. is friends, what Paul was speaking about is the time that we are in. And as I looked back, I'm blown away by the sheer number of those friends who I still have on Facebook, and we keep really not in touch in any other way, but, but the sheer volume of them who have walked away from what is true. The sheer volume who have turned away from Christ. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say it's at least 30%. It may be higher. It may be as much as 50%. People that I worshipped with, that I stood arm in arm with at, at many points in time, Never, ever imagining that that would be the reality. And yet, there are some who have denied him completely. Others who have gone off seeking teachers who will tell them what they want to hear so that they can live a way that is so far from godly. 
There are many others who have found that Jesus is a way instead of the way. And friends, that's sobering. You know, Paul goes on to tell Timothy in what we read, be sober-minded, Timothy. Does that mean that we walk around and we're constantly melancholy, we're constantly, you know, serious about everything, we never joke? If that's the case, Rory's not allowed to teach anymore. So, <laughs> no. But friends, we need to, to face the reality of the culture and the times in which we're living. And friends, we need to have a renewed picture. And with that, I want to call the worship team up. I know Johnny was going to close in a song. So worship team, go ahead and come up. We'll close. I don't want to, to, to take any more time. But friends, if there's nothing else that we leave with today, may we begin to entertain the questions. Lord, what is it that you have for us? Lord, what is it that you have for me? What things in my heart keep me from obedience to you? What things in my heart keep me from going? What things hold me back? I've already spoken to you guys. It's inconvenient to me to, you know, to be confronted with our believers in China. That's hard. It's hard to hear. Now, it doesn't mean that I have to go and seek out persecution, but, but I need to ask the question, Lord, what does that mean for me? As a 21st century American living in this culture, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my family? What does that mean for how we live? What we do with our time? What we consume in our living rooms? What things we allow to penetrate our minds? And make no mistake, when they penetrate our minds, they penetrate our hearts. Friends, those are good questions for us to ask. But here's the thing that I know. God is speaking to us. He is speaking to this church. He is using this body of believers in this time and in this place. He has placed you here for a reason. He has given us his word. He has given us teachers. I pray that, that what has been spoken today are not my words, but are his. And you know, one way that we can be assured of that is that we continue to teach the whole counsel of God. We continue to teach the scripture, that that is the basis of what we do.